in my experience, things move a lot faster in the surgery center. There's far less bureaucracy and red tape and product committees and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, usually the surgeons are the owners of the surgery center or at least have some partnership in the surgery center. Most of them are pretty busy. So if they say they want something, as long as you can make the price comparable to an equal product with another company, they'll let you in pretty easily. Welcome to the Medical Device Innovators Podcast. On this podcast, we explore ways to accelerate developments and get your medical devices to market faster and more efficiently. We engage with industry professionals that are changing the game and talk through the processes and challenges shaping medical device development in the current day and age with ever-shortening timelines and budgets. This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, data to support regulatory approval, and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster. Find out more at siesimulation.com. Here's your host, Arlen Ward. Welcome to another episode of the Medical Device Podcast. I have with me today, Mike Detelm from BVI, and we've got a couple of unique aspects of medical devices to talk about today. But first, let's start kind of with your background, Mike. What do you do? Who do you do it for? And how did you end up in this space? Well, what I call myself or a friend of mine term for people that have been in our business a long time and are very social, I guess, are as ophthalmolic. I've been in ophthalmology for 26 years. I started in 1998. I was fortunate enough to break in the LASIK business. It took me about two years to get into it, but I recognized a good spot. And there was a company based out of St. Louis, that, which is where I'm from, that was kind of pioneers in that business. So basically begged them until I finally got a job. I was on a technical clinical side, but I really shined there and then moved into a sales job. And then I've been in sales and ophthalmology ever since. I uh, worked predominantly in implant sales, interocular lenses. Uh, for the last seven years, I've worked with a company that's focused more on single-use disposable products, but we launched an IOL a couple of years ago, which I've been very successful with. Uh, over the years, I've sold phacal emulsification units, which are what's used to remove a cataract from the eye. I sold some glaucoma devices and equipment. I sold surgical microscopes for a few years. Sold diagnostics that they use for preoperative stuff for ophthalmology. You know, lots of different types of IOLs, premium IOLs, multifocal IOLs, phacic IOLs. So, like I said, ophthalmaholic. I got into the business, kind of went into neuro for a couple of years, was miserable, and just, you know, did a little bit of ophthalmology still, but been stuck with ophthalmology, and I'll be here until I retire, which I'm gunning for in a few years. Nice. Okay. So what's different about neurology or the neuro side of things versus ophthalmology? I apologize in advance for any neurosurgeons listening, but <laughs> for neuro, in my experience, in my three years of doing neurosurgery, which of course I was also doing ophthalmology, selling surgical microscopes at the time, neurosurgeons are cut from a completely different cloth than cataract surgeons, refractive surgeons. You know, they are dealing with a lot of mortality, a lot of surgeries that fail over time, their success rate. You know, a lot of times, hey, you got a brain tumor, they take out the brain tumor and the people can't talk, but they're mm -hmm. still alive and they still are alive for six, eight months, two years, whatever. Their quality of life might not be that great, but, you know, they don't get a lot of the joy that an ophthalmologist gets and it comes out in their attitude. They're cut from a different cloth. You know, ophthalmologists, you ask them at the scrub sink, hey, what'd you do this weekend? And they're like, oh, I did this and I did this and I had a soccer game and I went this and I went fishing and neurosurgeons are like, I was on call. 
Okay. And I asked him, hey, what do you like to do in your spare time? I don't know. I work all the time, you know, just not really the personalities that I grew accustomed to, especially in refractive surgery with LASIK, which in the beginning, 1998, was pretty incredible time. I've never found a wave quite like it in 25 years. I've had a few nice waves, but, you know, they were making a lot of money, cash pay patients, patients come in unhappy, leaving ecstatic and making a ton of money in the process. So ophthalmology is a very good specialty for lifestyle and family and you don't have mortality, you know, from usually you fix it and send the patients home and they're okay. There's some diseases that consist and persist through life, but they can manage them pretty well and usually get the people to the end of life before they lose their eyesight. So they've got a pretty successful patient population as far as postoperatively. And, you know, there's not as much challenges like a neurosurgeon might face. So in defense of me picking on neurosurgeons, they definitely have a much harder client population and things they're dealing with. Sure. Yeah. By the time we catch them at the scrub sink. And it's probably important, but life is a little bit different or, you know, not being able to walk if you're doing a spine surgery or things like that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the way I kind of envision this, and you can kind of correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of eye surgeries and whatnot are done in surgery centers rather than say in hospitals. Is that? That's correct. I had a feeling you would say that question. I would estimate good 70 to you know, 65 to 80% are done in surgery centers by fewer surgeons than work in hospitals. There's hospitals just, it's a much higher reimbursement in hospitals, but they're just far less efficient. And, you know, most of the surgeons that are busy and more skilled tend to gravitate towards surgery centers because they, in most states, unless there's a CON, they can own part of that surgery center. And then they not only get paid for their procedure, but if they're running a good surgery center, they can make almost as much in profitability on the facility reimbursement side. On a hospital side, obviously the hospital's getting that reimbursement and then the surgeon gets their surgeon fee. So it's just another way to have another bucket of income. Yeah. And as a recipient of that famed LASIK surgery, I can definitely attest to everything that you said. You know, I wore glasses my entire life from the time I was probably second and third grade. It's just getting progressively thicker as I got older, right? And you know, originally wasn't able to get LASIK because they said that my, my corneas were too thin, but the technology definitely advanced over the years and got to the point that I could do that. And yeah, it completely changed my life in terms of lifestyle, being able to, you know, avoid even the contact lenses at that point and just be able to wake up in the morning and be able to read the alarm clock <laughs> was a brand new experience for me, right? So. Well, in 1998, LASIK was an incredible procedure just out of the chute and like you know, high 90% patient satisfaction. And then the next advancement, maybe maybe made it 96.5% patient satisfied. Next one, 97. I mean, now they're up to probably 99 point something percent patient satisfaction. And like you said, the lasers got better. They're less tissue hungry. The techniques are better. You know, refractive better. Diagnostics are better. It's an incredible procedure. And if you've got the means to do it, I highly encourage people, especially if they're a little on the younger side, you know, of 40, because eventually when you turn 40, you get presbyopic and you lose that near vision. So then they're like, whoa, what do I got to do now? You know, which it's an inevitability. So. Yeah. That was what kind of pushed me that way too was. Yeah. My eye doctor was like, look, yeah, you know, you're used to coming in and us changing the prescription a little bit and being able to see again. He goes, you're getting to the point where we got to make some decisions about what you want to be able to see. And so. I went and did the LASIK side of things. Not to say that I won't be in reading glasses at some point in the future, but- Sure, uh, it's an inevitability. If you live long enough, which is nice for my business, if you live long enough, you're going to get in reading glasses. And eventually, if you live long enough, you're going to get a cataract. And that's where my bread and butter is now, is in cataract surgery. So 
you know, there's over 3 million of those performing in the U.S. every year and 16 million worldwide, something like that. Other than having teeth pulled, it's the most commonly performed surgical procedure that I'm aware of. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's a much bigger market than I would have expected. When you started talking about interocular lenses and the number of different variations that there are at this point, it kind of leads me to believe that there's a lot more to that market than I would have expected is out there. Is that one of the areas of big growth now? Well, there's several different varieties of lenses out there. Historically, up until like 2010, most patients were treated with just a monofocal IOL, which treats for one distance. And if they wanted to get some sort of multifocality, they could treat, would do what's called monovision, where they treat one eye for distance and one eye for near. Fortunately, things evolved and we had then multifocal lenses that became available around then. So now patients can have, if they're eligible for cataract surgery, they can have their insurance pay for what they would normally for cataract surgery, but then they can pay for the extra services and the premium procedure of having a multifocal IOL implanted in their eye, which gives them a full range of vision postoperatively. Then also in the interim since 2010, several different varieties of toric lenses, which you've heard the word astigmatism, a toric mm-hmm. lens that treats astigmatism. Those have come out as well. So you can, and then there's also multifocals with astigmatism, tall toric multifocals and other versions of lenses that are called fake IOLs that go in the eye while your natural lens stays in place. You know, the first toric and multifocal lenses that were available came out in around 2005, but they weren't a premium IOL and they kind of were a nice niche thing. But now that there's a premium portion and an insurance pay portion to a cataract procedure. So it's nice for the surgeons because they've got an extra upside. It's nice for the patients because they get to choose, you know, how do you want to see postoperatively? And it's nice business as well for the sales reps because it's great technology. And, you know, it's always, my company has one that's in trials right now, a new trifocal. It's very, very successful in Europe. When that comes available, will be the hottest topic on the market, assuming somebody doesn't bring one in at the same time, which I don't think is very you know likely. So every time there's a new great technology, it takes a long time for these things to get through FDA. There's only four or five ophthalmology companies in the United States, maybe six that are selling IOLs right now. It's not like orthopedic where there might be 20 different people selling knees and 20 different people selling spine and, you know, Mm. where there's always a new innovative product that's a little bit slower cycle in ophthalmology, even though there's a heck of a lot of procedures being done. So what does that look like, that development cycle? Are we talking two years, five years, a decade? It depends. I've worked with companies that, you know, I went to work for a company in 2010 that was like, oh, we've got two or three products that are just ready to be approved. And I worked for them for six years and they didn't get any approvals. You know, other companies are better at that. They might have bigger company or just more experience in order to be able to get things through FDA faster. And they're turning out new products every year, year and a half, two years, you know? So in the instance of my company, we started a lens trial. I want to say about a year ago, year and a half ago. Yeah. Right about a year ago, got the patients in it, but then they got to follow up post-op data for at least a year before they can submit to the FDA. And then assuming everything goes well, it's probably another year before that. So I'd imagine my company's right about at the point of submitting that data. Could be another year, could be two years, hopefully, you know, so, but I've seen it take a decade for something to go through the FDA and I've seen them fast track things. And I don't know if it's necessarily always a function of how good the product is as much as it is how good the company is at making things happen, the efficiency of their business and so on and so forth. Yeah. One thing I've definitely seen over the years working as a consultant in medical devices is, you know, you think that 
when you work for one company, you think you know the development process and you think everybody follows the same, but it's a bit different for every company out there. And so you see the ones that can navigate those regulatory hurdles because they can anticipate that a bit better than somebody that, you know, kind of butts up against it and has to hear it from the FDA and then come back and address deficiencies and things like that along the way. So once we had a big sales meeting for a former company seven or eight years ago, which we were waiting and waiting and waiting for product to get through the FDA. And, you know, we kind of get frustrated after a few years and we had a national sales meeting and paused and paused and paused and kept putting it off. Oh, well, and I raised my hand. I said, do we have the FDA's fax number? <laughs> I was, you know, and I was of course in jest, but it was a nice laugh. I didn't get reprimanded for it, fortunately, but after waiting five years of getting the same answer over and over again, you got to tell some jokes in order to keep yourself pushing forward and being patient, you know? So do you know regulatory pathway for these types of devices? Are they usually new devices or is there like a 510K type pathway to, to do? There's 510K pathways. I think when they're like add-ons to a product, I might be speaking incorrectly. I'm not exactly, it's not exactly my area of expertise. So like, for sure. instance, you know, they might use the base product of a monofocal that they're going to turn into a multifocal so they can, or in the vice versa, they might launch a multifocal and then launch the monofocal version of that same lens. So, you know, the dynamics of how it works in an eye or, you know, the optic, the material, the haptics, which are the little tiny parts inside the eye well that hold it in place inside the bag, inside the, inside the eye where the natural lens used to be. Instead of reinventing the wheel, they're borrowing the hubcap, so to speak. So I think, yeah, they do that a lot for launching different versions of the same lens, you know. But when you get into like the trifocals and things that you're talking about now, then you have trials and things that you have to get through. Yeah, absolutely. Especially on a new product coming from across. I mean, even it's got over a decade, you know, in our instance or even instance of the company I was explaining before that had the long process of getting approval. There's well over a decade of experience and tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands. I think there's been a million of my lenses that we're trying to get in the U.S. implanted worldwide, but FDA doesn't care. They got to, you know, they got to do their thing and sure. cross their I's and dot their T's or do whatever they do. Oh, perfect. Yeah. So moving, I guess, out of the regulatory side, which like you said, is kind of, you know, somebody else's area for sure. I'd have no hair left if I had to do that. Uh, yeah, I understand. Absolutely. <laughs> so as you bring these devices into these surgery centers and to the, these doctors, since it isn't, you know, like you said, a lot of this is cash payers, things along those lines. Is there a difference in the types of features that they look for, or maybe a different way that they look at devices as opposed to say what you'd find in an OR in a hospital? I definitely say that in my experience, things move a lot faster in the surgery center. There's far less bureaucracy and red tape and product committees and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, usually the surgeons are the owners of the surgery center, or at least have some partnership in the surgery center. And most of them are pretty busy. So if they say they want something, as long as you can make the price comparable to an equal product with another company, they'll, you know, let you in pretty easily. Sometimes you got to jump through a few hoops. On the hospital side, where again, I said, there's a lot less volume, you normally got to jump through a lot of hoops and they tend to, you know, be more involved with new product committees and they probably have vendor mate or rep tracks or all these other things. And you got to be more training in there and that sort of thing. And generally less volume, although there are some very busy eye hospitals, I'm not saying, you know, that they don't exist, but so it's a lot more legwork on the hospital side than typically on the surgery center side, in my experience. And so you're talking as a salesperson, you're talking to more of the decision makers when you're in the surgery center than you are, you know, in the hospital, there's a lot more 
Well, yeah. And in the name, like in the hospitals, you got all different characters of surgeons, you know, and some surgeons, they ask for something wherever they're at and they get it. Like in a hospital, I want to use it next week. I don't want to do a committee. Let me have it. And they're like, okay, doctor. Other guys are a little less aggressive or confident or whatever. And if there's any pushback, they're like, okay, well, do what you need to do. And, you know, and then the doctor kind of just shrugs and says, well, I got to wait for them to cross their I's and dot their T's, like I said. Yeah. It's not a 100% correlation way a hospital works or way a surgery center works in my business. I can just say with confidence that on the surgery center side, it flows a little easier. You know, they're not as many layers of yellow tape to go through and so on and so forth. Nice. Okay. And there's also, like I said, 65, 75, 80% of the business is being done at surgery centers. So your upside is a lot more business there. But then again, on the busy surgery centers, every other rep is out there trying to pick those off as well. So, you know, that's the coveted going for the bigger fish versus little fish type of thing, I'd say. I get the impression that it moves pretty fast, that, you know, kind of what the offerings are and getting the word out and things like that, that you need to be on top of the centers in your market, right? Sure. So my products, historically, my company has been more of just selling single-use disposable items. They aren't really, you know, there's some that are definitively distributably better than others, but a lot of them are kind of commodity type products. So if you're in a surgery center business, volume, price is really going to be important. They just want to be able to move through their cases and get done. In a hospital, tend to be able to charge a little more. Same with interocular lenses because you got to go through all the processes to even get in the door. On an IOL, for instance, it's a much more specialized thing. It's an implant that's permanently going in the patient. There's tens of millions, hundreds of millions of them all over in the ground from everybody who's passed who's had cataract surgery. So that's a little more nuanced in that, you know, you're pitching more feature benefit and talking about how your optic works, how your haptics work, how your injector works, post-operative vision, patient satisfaction, how easy it is to load, inject, things like that for interoperative behavior of the lens and how it works with technicians and, you know, training and all these different things come into play. So any number of those things could be a hot button for a surgeon. You got to find out what their challenges are with the lenses that they're presently using, and then hopefully find a niche where yours product will fit best based on their experience. And there's other guys that I've used this forever. I'm not going to change. I have no interest in changing. It works. I don't see a benefit in changing. Thanks for showing me, but it ain't going to happen. So that's great. I like when they do that because then you just move on, you know? Right. Yeah. I'd rather have a yes or a no, but 10 maybes really gets old after a while. So when somebody goes from maybe to no, I'm like, thank you. I'm sick of asking, you know, (laughs) you know, I'll ask until they say no, but I'd much rather have two maybes and a no than 10 maybes and a no because it just saves a lot of time. But these attorney yeses are even better. <laughs> right. Yeah. Maybe the no is one thing, but maybe the yes is. Yeah. Is yeah. Better maybe the sure. yeses are what we're going for. <laughs> and just yeses are even better. That's the other perspective I was really interested in covering today was kind of the perspective from a sales standpoint. Maybe from a bit wider, you know, for anybody developing medical devices, they're looking at all the different aspects, right? You've got to look at the, the reimbursement for things that, you know, involve, you know, Medicare or insurance. You've got the usability, the human factor side of things, you've got the technical aspects of developing the device. At the end of the day, all of that has to translate into sales, right? And so from the sales standpoint, what sort of advice would you have for somebody developing a new device and things to pay attention to that maybe 
aren't terribly obvious until you get to that sales part. I think if you're developing a product that's just a me too product, you know, it's just basically the same thing as somebody else has. You're going to have a hard time getting that to stay as a product that the doctor's focused on. If you've got an incumbent product that owns the market, you know, you better be able to provide, you're going to provide a new product for that particular segment of the business or surgical procedure or whatever technique, but it has to stand up against that incumbent product. There's quite a few times, you know, get somebody to try it out, they use it for a while. Question is, is after six months or a year without you being there in the OR and showing them what's going on and catching them up on techniques, are they still ordering it? You know, that's a challenge that you run into. You can be good enough rep to get the trial and you can be good enough rep to get them to order the product regularly. But where the rubber hits the road long term is, does the product stay on the shelf? Does the doctor keep using it without you, you know, having to be there holding their hand and supporting them every step of the way? I think in some specialties like orthopedics or spine or things like that, the reps are always ready to eat each other's lunch. I think it's a little more collegial in the ophthalmology area. We're not in every surgical case. We couldn't be. There's doctors that do 3,000 cataracts. You can't you know, live with a surgeon like orthopedic reps do. So when you sell a product, you're hoping that it can stay on the shelf as long as you're able to deliver it. It's getting the result, you know, things like that. So back to your question, any new product for a certain percent of surgeons is going to get interest. You can, if you're a good rep, you can get it from interest to a trial. And if you go from trial, you can get it on the shelf if you're a good rep. But keeping them ordering and keeping them using the product long-term is the challenge. And it, the product has to stand up to the test of time. So I think developing products, they need to be innovative. And you know, like I explained with the multifocals, there's been, I'd say we're now on the fourth or fifth generation of multifocals since 2010. And every time there's a new version, it, assuming it's performing at least as good or better than the previous version, it takes over the market. And, you know, if you're lucky enough to be on one of those waves, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> I've been on a couple of them. So the question is though, when the next version comes out, are people going to jump from your product to that product? And that often happens on these premium things in my business. Will it stand the test of time and still have surgeons using it one year, two year, three years, four years down the road without having to go back to the drawing board and keep making modifications and so on and so forth. So a skilled salesperson can get it in the door, but keeping it on the shelf is really a function of the performance of the device for sure. Well, and it doesn't hurt to be a good rep and provide good service. And if a company's providing quality customer service, delivering things when they say they're going to do it, getting orders out, things like that, you know, you've got a lot of challenges with your customer service and you're not selling a product that the doctor is crazy about that they absolutely need to have for surgery. There's Usually a half dozen other companies that will provide that product. And like, as an example, we sell cannulas. There's a dozen companies that sell cannulas. A cannula is a cannula, you know, <laughs> they all look the same. You couldn't tell under the microscope, even if they're any different. So it's, if you can't deliver it, you can't get the price right. You can't get an agreement the way they want it to be then, you know, or it might be something they don't even want to mess with. And if you're on the shelf, they just keep ordering it and ordering it and ordering it because it's not worth their time to go shop for another one until they run into an issue. So, and I think that would be the way for most commodity style products is like, you know, you got to be able to provide it. You got to be able to deliver it. And I mean, we'll make the price right. Premium products, they'll put up a little bit more jumping through a little more hoops to get it, or if they got to wait or do a process to order, that's a little more complicated or whatever, you know, as long as they're getting good results, they'll go through those challenges with premium products. And what sort of features resonate most with surgeons? Is it improved speed? Are we talking 
efficacy from a patient safety standpoint? What I always say about ophthalmologists probably is for any specialty. It's just ophthalmology is my area of expertise. If you ask six doctors, you'll get six different answers and, you know, 50% say one thing and 50% say another thing. So, you know, you can have an opinion and you'll never be wrong because nobody's ever going to, it's not a 100% thing. There might be docs even, for instance, that I've worked with this rep for 25 years. He's never treated me wrong. I'm going to use his lenses no matter what, you know, it's just godfather of my kids, that sort of thing. Other guys are like, hey, I want to try the newest technology. I want to try every lens that's on the market and I want to provide customized solutions for my patient. Other guys are like, I train in residency with this lens and I'm comfortable with it. I get good results. My patients aren't complaining. Surgeries go smoothly. I don't have complications. I don't care to change. So it's like I said, six of one and a half dozen another as far as what motivates them. Guys who are early on the adopt, you know, if you've done it long enough, you know who the new adopters are. You know, the guys who are going to walk in and they're going to say, well, who else is using it? You know, what data do you have? Other guys, they might give them the pitch 10 seconds and they're like, yeah, I'll try it. Other guys, you might have to call on them eight times in order to get them to consider it. And you just know, hey, well, I keep chipping away. I'll get some business or at least get a trial. It's just kind of a different, really a different cadence depending upon each individual surgeon. Yeah, they've all got different needs and things and the priorities for them. For and sure. also their bandwidth, I mean, is that small, you know, They're, they've got <laughs> 20 other reps for 20 other things besides just an interocular lens that are trying to get them to try something new as well. Hey, we got this a piece of equipment I want you to try, or hey, there's a new dry eye treatment that we want you to try. And like, how many things is a doctor really able to try to implement at one time? You know, some guys are great at it and trial a ton of things. Some guys don't have the bandwidth to trial one thing a year, one thing a quarter. It's just different. And it's funny. I laugh because there's doctors I call on that do 500 cataracts, which is a fair amount where I'm, you know, in the West coast, that's probably about a higher volume surgeon, you know, in a bigger city, that's a higher volume surgeon in St. Louis, Missouri, 500 is not a lot of cataracts. I mean, you know, it's all right, but there's guys doing 1500, 2000, 2500, 3000. And I'm amazed that guys that are doing two and 3000 I'll call them up and say, hey, I'd like to stop in and show you something. They're like, yeah, come on in at noon. And then there's other guys that are doing 500 that are like, oh, I'm just so busy, you know, and you go into their waiting room and you could roll a bowling ball and not hit somebody, but they're so busy, they can't see you. And it's like different strokes, different ways, but there's some guys that have, you know, just are able to with huge businesses that they're running with tons amount of surgery and tons amount of patients still have the bandwidth to like say, yeah, come on in and tell me about what you want to tell me about or what idea you have and give you a minute or two minutes and you know, say year and gives you a shot. So kind of interesting. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Okay. All right. So if there's somebody just out of high school, just out of college, whatever, that's interested in medical sales, what's a good route to get into that side of the business? Well, I know like hiring managers, recruiters, it's obviously if you can't break in out of college, which is very hard. It took me three years of really knocking on doors and literally two years literally showing up at the offices of the company that I went to work for. And inevitably, anytime I was in the neighborhood of Chesterfield, Missouri, which is where my initial company was based, if I was dressed, you know, if I had a pair of khakis and a shirt on, I went in, knocked on the door and I said, I want to meet this person. I want to meet this person. I probably met 20 people over two years before I was finally hired. You got to have that type of doggedness to get in. It's not out of college. You're lucky. I think a lot of people, they get their break into medical, into pharma. I never went into pharma. I had opportunities going to pharma, but at the same time, I went into surgical. I'm very happy I went into surgical. I'm, I wouldn't be a pharma guy. It's too 
regimented, I think for me, you know, but that's a great way to go. But after I think a few years in pharma, if you stay in pharma and you don't move into surgical, you're going to be a pharmaceutical rep forever, which that's very lucrative, very good business. And for some people, it's the right job for them. I know it wouldn't be for me, but you know, out of college, if you don't have that opportunity, if you don't have a sales experience, you don't have some way to get your foot in the door, relationships or whatever, hiring managers, they love to see companies like enterprise that have great training programs, happier companies, you know, where you're going out and knocking on a lot of doors and just giving a lot of pitches. If you've been hired by one of those companies that have these really regimented sales training programs and that you've shown some success and growth, that generally correlates very, very well into medical equipment, surgical sales, that sort of thing. Getting in is the hardest part. You know, I mean, it's really once you're in and you have some success and you build a track record, then you can really run with it for a long time. But for people coming out of college, I'd say, don't expect it to happen in six months. Don't expect it to happen in a year. It could take two or three years like it did for me. And I've been tremendously successful ever since. At least tremendously successful in my peer group, I guess, or in my family and things like that. I mean, there's people that are you know, making millions of dollars out there. And I consider that even more successful financially, at least. But it's been a very, very good business for me. I've loved every minute of it. I don't dread... Sunday nights, I've never had to go, oh man, I'm not really looking forward to going to surgery tomorrow or whatever. You know, it's just, it's a good business. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So if somebody wants more information or wants to get a hold of you, what's a good way for them to do that? Well, my personal email is Michael, M I C H A E L, daughter period, my last name, which is spelled just like diet soda, D I E T, and helm, like the helm of a ship. And that's at att.net. So michael.detail at att.net. Okay. All right. Well, I appreciate all this information. Like I said, this is very unique from the standpoint of both eye care as well as from a sales standpoint. I think people developing devices would do well to mind what you were saying in both cases in terms of how to develop devices and have it reflect in the sales. Because at the end of the day, that's what drives the company, right? So Yeah, yeah. And innovation helps, that's for sure. I'd say also one thing to, it's good, you know, if you're having a Me Too product or a lot of Me Too products, it's tough to get your foot really, yourself anchored into an operating room. When you have an anchor in the operating room, whether whatever product that might be, that they're like, I will not do a surgery without this, you know, then you're able to bring in a lot of other products attached to that. Because, hey, okay, they, they really want to use this FACO machine. That's the instrument used to make do a cataract, for instance. The biggest FACO machine company in the business also is the biggest implant company in the business. And they're also the biggest disposable company in the business off the back of that anchor that's in the OR. And they sell good products all the way across the line. But, you know, that anchor that people have to have allows you to really leverage a lot of other business as well. So that's something important. Okay. Thanks very much. I appreciate the conversation. Well, that was fun. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Medical Device Innovators Podcast, powered by System Insight Engineering. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by System Insight Engineering, a leading innovator in leveraging computational modeling and simulation to reduce time and cost in getting medical devices to market through insightful design decisions, dots to support regulatory approval, and clarifying understanding into device performance. System Insight Engineering helps you to better your bottom line so you can help more people faster.
Find out more at siesimulation.com.